It's Midday Magazine for Thursday, August 24th. I'm Shelby Herbert. In response to community input, Petersburg's Hospital Board will hold its meeting in the assembly chambers of the municipal building tonight. The board has moved its regularly scheduled meeting time from 5 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. KFSK will broadcast this meeting and all future hospital board meetings live. Petersburg Medical Center's IT department is scheduled to update the board on a few ways they're expanding service. They're working with Derek Casey, the director of Mountain View Manor, to improve internet capabilities throughout the assisted living facility. The department also received some grant funding for telemedicine, which assisted with the construction of three telehealth rooms. The Materials Management Department will update the board on the hospital's inventory. They're currently working on replacing all of the hospital's latex catheters with non-latex ones and replenishing surgical supplies. The Nursing Department will report on ongoing staffing challenges. Over the past three months, the department has needed additional contract nurses to address several vacant positions. This summer's staffing shortage caused the department to have its acute care staffing during the weekdays. Chief Nursing Officer Jennifer Briner reports that they're stable in the short term, but need some more hands on deck to ensure they can keep up with administrative work in addition to their regular patient care. The nursing department is also advertising for a certified nursing assistant class to begin in October. Finally, the board will enter into an executive session, closed to the public, to consider medical staff appointments and ongoing legal matters. Again, Petersburg's hospital board has moved their regular monthly meetings into the assembly chambers of the municipal building. KFSK will broadcast that meeting live and post the recording on our website, kfsk.org. Anyone from the community can join the meeting in person, by phone, or on Zoom. There's more information on KFSK's community calendar. A fire broke out early yesterday morning aboard an Alaska Marine Highway System ferry traveling through the Wrangell Narrows. As Sage Smiley reports, the fire sent almost a dozen passengers and crew to Wrangell's hospital to be treated for smoke inhalation. Looking at the ferry Columbia from the shore in Wrangell at about 11.45 in the morning on Wednesday, there didn't appear to be anything amiss. That is, except that the 418-foot ferry wasn't supposed to be in Wrangell. The Columbia should have left for Ketchikan at 6.15 that morning, but an overnight fire in its bar delayed the ship as 11 people were taken off the ferry to be medically evaluated. Stephen Harrison is a crew member on the Columbia. He was part of the fire response team. In the bar last night at 3.15 in the morning, there was a, a general alarm went off and they said that it was not a, a drill, which is pretty obvious at 3.15, we wouldn't have a drill in the middle of the Wrangell Narrows. So all of the, all the people on Fire Team 1, we jumped up and ran for our fire suits. They told us to get dressed and we all donned our fire suits, put on our oxygen tanks and went on oxygen because the ship was filling up with smoke. By the time Harrison got to the fire, he says it had already mostly been extinguished by another crew member. But there was still smoldering, so we took water in and sprayed down the bar. So there's a lot of dirt and debris and ashes in the bar mixed with the ABC fire extinguisher stuff. So it kind of made a little bit of a mess, and it's going to take us a while to clean up. Harrison says his six-person fire team was using supplemental oxygen, which helped them avoid the effects of smoke inhalation. But other crew and passengers felt the effects. 
Shannon McCarthy is a spokesperson for Alaska's Department of Transportation, which oversees the ferry system. The crew reacted pretty quickly, but out of an abundance of caution, they wanted to make sure that anyone that was nearby got seen for smoke inhalation. Emergency medical services in Wrangell transported 11 people to the local hospital for treatment. All the patients had been treated and released from the Wrangell Medical Center by early afternoon, according to a hospital spokesperson. And McCarthy says all 11 reboarded the ship and continued south. Harrison says he thinks the fire didn't cause any serious damage to the ship. We lost 10 cases of Alaska white beer. Honestly, that's the extent of the damage. It's not totally clear how the fire started. Harrison says the working theory is that an ice machine in the bar area started the fire. We're assuming some sort of electrical malfunction or maybe it was just too close to the to the cardboard cases of beer. We don't know. The Columbia came back into regular service on the Alaska Marine Highway in mid-February after being docked for three years as a cost-saving measure. The 49-year-old vessel is the largest of the Marine Highway's four mainline ferries, serving larger communities with cabins and berths for longer journeys. The Columbia was briefly tied up for repairs earlier this summer after crew noticed issues with one of its thrusters and leaking pipes in the ship's fire suppression system. It's not the only ferry that's experienced mechanical issues recently. The Hubbard was waylaid by generator issues earlier this month. The Alaska Marine Highway is running thin, with five of its nine ferries in service as of August 23rd. The Kennecott, Taslina, and Madaniska are in layup in the boatyard in Ketchikan, and the Latuya is in overhaul until August 24th. Harrison says he's proud of the response of the Columbia crew and fire team. It proved to us that we actually could respond and do what we need to do in the amount of time that we needed to do it. Um, And it all went out really well. It it was a great drill. I mean, it was. It was a live fire drill, basically. Mm -hmm. The Columbia left Wrangell heading south just after noon Wednesday after passengers and crew returned from receiving treatment. DOT doesn't expect the fire to cause any delay to the ship's schedule. It's expected to arrive in Bellingham on Friday morning. In Wrangell, I'm Sage Smiley. The Harvest Fest in Juneau celebrated another growing season Saturday. Usually there's a long wait list for the four-acre garden, but this year there's space for beginners. As Yvonne Crumry reports... New community gardens in Thane and at the Glory Hall shelter mean there's a lot more space to go around. Each year, the Juno Community Garden celebrates the growing season with a harvest fair, complete with prizes for the best vegetables grown. On a table covered in vegetables, one stands out. It's a turnip with a face made out of carrots. Long stalks of turnip greens fan out around it, and a hook-shaped carrot sits on its head. Sophie and Mateo Achave created Octopus on a Hook. They're this year's youth champions of the Harvest Fair. Does that say grand champion on it? Yeah, division champion. And then Juno Community Garden class champion. Sophie's nine years old. Her brother Mateo is five. He's a bit shyer. Both are first-time gardeners. Their mom, Katie, asks what they learned this year. What, what did we discover, guys, that we learned? Larva, mics, <laughs> turnips. When you grow things, you just don't know how it's going to turn out, right? And they aren't the only first-timers this year, says the garden secretary, Pat McClear. With the first season at the Thane Community Garden underway, the wait list at the Juno Community Garden is about half its normal length. The garden has 170 regular plots. Each bed costs $35 a year, 
and requires five hours of service in the garden, like helping manage the weeds. Thane's new community garden, with 40 beds so far, has taken some of the pressure off. And now residents at Juno Shelter, the Glory Hall, have their own community garden too. All this means that most people on this year's waiting list have a good chance of getting in. But McClear says people should sign up soon. And if they're hesitating because they don't know where to start, McClear says other gardeners will help them out. If you're a rookie, you could walk up to anybody who's out and say, we got a minute, and, and people will give you the minute and help you out. McClear says there's a wealth of knowledge to tap into around the garden. In Juneau, I'm Yvonne Cremery. Ununggah victims of crime were honored in a candlelight vigil last fall. The ceremony was the first of its kind held by the Aleutian Pribilof Islands Association, and organizers say they plan to host more in the years to come. As Kanisha McGlashan-Price reports, the effort is about bringing awareness to missing and murdered Ununggah people and honoring the lives that were tragically taken. Sister in heaven, they say there is a reason. They say there will be. Time will heal. Neither time or reason will change the way it feels. Arlene Gunderson is reciting a poem at the vigil in Anchorage's Hostetler Park on a frosty October afternoon. She's surrounded by friends and family, purple ribbons and candles. Gunderson says she chose this poem to honor her sister, Olga Julia Nielsen, who was murdered almost 50 years ago. Gone are the days we used to share, but in my heart, you are always there. The gates of memories will never close. I miss you more than anybody knows. Love and miss you every day. Until we meet again, always and forever. My sister Olga, thank you. Nielsen was murdered in 1973. She was nine when a man stabbed her at school in her home community of Belkovsky, east of Kinkove in Cold Bay. This gathering at the park to remember Unanga victims of crime is dedicated to Nielsen. Her sisters Gunderson and Marlene Mack say they're grateful for the opportunity to recognize Nielsen's death and celebrate her life. Yeah, we never really talked about what happened. We just talk about how she was and where she would be if she was with us today. But talking about what happened, I think it's a part of the healing process. If you want to share how Olga was as a kid, mm. her personality, anything like that. I'm very happy. I'm very happy girl. Kind, well, soft-hearted, kind. Mm-hmm. just a joy to be around. We've always... Michael Livingston is the Healthy Relationships Coordinator at APIA. He didn't know Nielsen himself, but he lived in neighboring Cold Bay at the time of her death, and he heard about what happened as a teenager. The tragic event shocked everyone up and down the peninsula and the Aleutian Islands, the Privilof Islands, and the Shumagat Islands. The tragedy has haunted me for years, and I've wanted to do something for the family for decades. But in my community, it became a taboo topic, and nobody was supposed to talk about it. All these years later, Livingston helped organize the vigil in Nielsen's honor, and he says he's grateful for the chance to do so. He says the growing effort to address the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous people statewide and nationwide is important. And it's essential for the Aleutian Pribilof region as well. Uh, we, we are trying to raise awareness uh, because 
we believe that if people are aware of the tragedies that we can take action to try to uh, make sure that this pattern doesn't continue. Uh, the pattern of missing people from our region, the pattern of uh, one Unilla homicide per year dating back to 1959. Livingston researches this issue. Before joining APIA, he served as a police officer in the region for almost three decades investigating homicides. He says he started tracking missing and murdered Unanga people informally at first. But as he recognized the gaps in the data, he began collaborating with other MMIP researchers, and their work became more and more systematic. Livingston and his fellow researchers found that there have been at least 64 Unanga homicides since Alaska became a state in 1959. Some of the victims were killed in the Lucian Pribilof region, others elsewhere in Alaska or in the lower 48. They ranged in age from 1 to 57 years old. 30 of those murders took place within the region, according to researchers. Nine others are still missing. Livingston says it's critical to know about the people in order to honor them, and to remember that these tragedies are a part of a larger history that goes back hundreds of years, a history in which Unanga people were killed and forcibly relocated under Russian colonization, a history in which people from Attu were taken as prisoners of war by the Japanese Imperial Navy, and a history of internment during World War II under American colonization. You know, I think in general, um, under harsh colonization, the Yunnan people have become silent uh, when when bad things happen, and we need to overcome that silence and uh, learn how to to speak up and uh, to uh, to voice our feelings. Elliot Basket Weaver from from Alaska and Fisher Shapsnikov said, uh, "If you know something." Um, that can improve things in our community. Don't be afraid to speak up. Stand up and speak up. And so we need to get a little bit better at standing up and speaking up uh, to honor our victims of crime. Back at the candlelight vigil, Livingston says he's happy over a dozen people came together to do just that, to remember Olga Nielsen and support her family and to acknowledge other missing and murdered Unanga people. While everybody's still here, we are hoping to perhaps have another event out in our villages maybe next year. Next year's the 50-year anniversary, and it sure be nice if we could get out to either Sandpoint or, or King Cove and, and continue to honor Olga. He says APIA plans to make the vigil an annual event, not just in Anchorage, but in other communities in the Lucian Pribilof Islands region. He also says the organization is considering creating a statue of Nielsen to help keep her memory alive. Reporting in Anchorage, I'm Kenesha McLaughlin-Price. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.